Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Garrett Finney, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Garrett Finney has worked as an architect, industrial designer, blacksmith, and carpenter. Right? That's pretty good already, right? He was That's awarded correct. the he was awarded the Rome Prize in Architecture and was the editor of issue 29 of Perspecta, Yale's Journal of Architecture. For 10 years, he was the senior architect at Habitability Design Center at NASA Johnson Space Center. Yes, a space architect. Uh, he has lectured widely and uh, has been a visiting design professor uh, focusing on mobile habitats and the 21st century camping at universities in the United States and throughout Canada. He's worked as um, uh, his work has been exhibited in Milan, Rome, New York, and New Haven. And today he's working on a project called Taxa, Taxa Outdoors, uh, after an exhaustive search for camping, a camping trailer that fits his lifestyle, getting outside with two small kids in tow. Some of us can relate to that. Uh, but he didn't really want a typical house on wheels. He designed his own. Cricket was born and Taxa Incorporated was founded. And so... I'm super interested in this conversation, Jared. This is you have such a fascinating introduction. I can't wait to hear your origin story and then and then talk about what you're doing today. So why don't we jump into this, dive a little deeper, 
and uh, go back to the beginning when this all started and share your origin story. Yeah, I very much hope it all makes sense looking backwards when I'm <laughs> when I'm even older than I am now. Um, yeah, I keep uh, putting myself in new situations. So looking backwards, I grew up in an outdoorsy way on the East Coast, uh, hiking Appalachian Trail and going to summer camp. And somehow, uh, whenever it rained, I was sent outside. So there's some some Calvin and Hobbes aspects of uh, of play. Where that were you used... on, on the East Coast? Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia and okay. spent my summers yeah. in Maine. The trail is a long, a long trail. Yeah. So, so did you, um, uh, did you spend time on the trail on both ends? Uh, no, mostly in Maine. My summer yeah. camp got me out there. So I paddled rivers and hiked the Appalachian Trail in Maine and learned how to light fires in the rain and all these seemingly yeah. outdated survival skills, I guess. Were, were uh, you a Boy Scout or was that just uh, camping kind of stuff? I was not a Boy Scout. Um, but that's a whole political conversation. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, Let's not go there. Let's stick with the yes. stick with the uh, the outdoors. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was sent off to summer camps, and back in the day, you went off for eight weeks, and I did various eight week wilderness trips, and we cut down trees and chopped firewood and whitewater kayaks all day for eight weeks, and I learned to cook then because we cooked over the open fire. Yeah, all these things. Um, but really. My, my design path, I found architecture in college almost by accident. Um, and all of a sudden, instead of sitting in the back row of the classroom, I was sitting in the front row and eager to talk. And that was exciting um, in a, I don't know, brain waking up way. Um, and then I went to graduate school and then I became obsessed with craft and personality. And that explains how I became a blacksmith and why I've laid bricks and built houses and am love thinking about how things are made and how how they talk if that makes any sense you know how objects and houses and buildings express themselves um with whatever values and personality and the more you look the more you should learn um so my my rome prize was all about craft and personality and how buildings sort of talk over time uh and, but then I've also had, a, a, I guess, an engineering vein, a left brain, right brain divide of I love efficiency um, and that slots right into the sustainability movements. And so I was designing a set of furniture that's like a puzzle optimized sheets of plywood. Um, you know, how can you make a dining room table that uses 95% of a sheet of plywood? Yeah. Um, and then I had a friend working at NASA and she invited me to visit. and that's of course super interesting just by definition so i went and visited and then after that i discovered that they were starting an office called the habitability design center where uh nasa realized at the beginning of the space station that a six-month mission was much different than a, a two-week mission in terms of uh the performance of a, a human so at its highest level, that means at the beginning of six months, you have 16 hours of productive time as a human. And at the end of six months mission, um, at least at that time, you had six or eight hours of productive time. So where does that time go? And is it stress? Is it rebellion? Is it disconnection? Is it all these things? So the office I was a part of was a tiny little like psychologist and architect and other various professions thinking about human performance. Um, 
and you know simultaneously i started having kids and it was hot swampy houston and eager to get them outside for all sorts of sanity reasons my sanity and also to exhaust my kids um and you know looked up and it's like oh my god everyone owns an rv like literally one in 11 families and in the east coast you sort of noticed that but i grew up hating rvs and being stuck behind them on highways um but in Texas, like everyone had one and all of a sudden in a in an awkward way for me, it's like, oh, I want an air conditioner too. For six months of the year, I want an air conditioner when I go <laughs> camping within three hours of Houston. Um, and then it was just, I became a snotty architect and it was like, oh my God, all these things are like the, the white box paradigm. Like they're made of crappy materials and nice. uh, they're all trying to be cheap hotel rooms on wheels. And like, I totally get why a lot of people like that. Um, but I was all about leaving my house at home and having a different experience and burning my fingers on a campfire and, you know, cooking, alternating between cooking hot dogs and cooking some foodie extravaganza campfire style um, thing. And just, it's like, what's going on? <laughs> why, where, where is the uh, camper for me? Um, and there really weren't any at the time. There's some movements since then that have started up um, that I guess I'm part of that are like off-road trailers and off-road camping overlanding. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, yeah. Um, so at the time, naively, uh, but inspired by NASA, Airstream has had a long history with NASA. It's been taking astronauts out to launch platforms and collecting Apollo astronauts. There was an Airstream on the deck of the aircraft carrier when they retrieved lunar lunar astronauts. Um, first, I just cold called Airstream and said, you should hire me with my weird resume and uh, get in the 21st century. And they said, yeah, it's interesting. Well, we will listen to your pitch. <laughs> um, but they didn't do anything. And then I went back and said, you really should hire me. Here's a design. And they said, that's still interesting. And we love hearing your ideas of course, um, but we're kind of working on something. Um, and then through total, like, I don't know, flukes, like I was sketching these things and drawing them and thinking about them. And then uh, a random person I met randomly wanted to give me $50,000 to build one huh. or build two. Um, and so I did, and then I took it to a trade show to test my assumptions. And the trade show I went to is, is now, of course, semi-defunct with the pandemic, but uh, the Outdoor Industry Association's trade show, where shoppers for REI go, basically, technical apparel and boots and sunglasses. And I just wanted to get it there to uh, see if the current generations of backpackers would sneer at this or, you know, whether my demographic was 50 year olds or 40 year olds or 30 year olds or all those things. So, uh, and then, then I caught some press and uh, chased my ass for a long time trying to learn how to manufacture because even though I love building things and I love designing houses and furniture and other things that there's little relationship to production manufacturing <laughs> and training people and standard operating procedures and consistency and quality of checks. And, uh, you know, I had humorous as an architect, 
humorous, meaning not humorous at all. Education in, uh, you know, a sealant that you apply in Houston that then goes to the state of Washington and experiences zero degrees temperature and what kind of freeze-thaw cycles things have in in different climates. Um, you know, so in architecture parlance, one small building that's that has you know eighty different sites. Um, and in further awkward education, it's like rain is not just about keeping water out as it falls from the sky, but when you're driving eighty miles an hour hmm. and <laughs> all these, you know rain coming up from underneath and from the sides and penetrating things. So uh, it took me a while to figure all those things out. Um, so that was a, you know, in a business way, I've often laughed at myself for how my architecture, like service, creative service industry job is not at all what having a product and starting a factory is. Um, and that means like any good public affairs trained person, you know, the team around you is incredibly important and finding, uh, again, I'm trying to relate it to architecture firms, you know, you know, getting all your consultants in-house, basically, um, getting your engineers and your testers and your fabricators and your assemblers and all getting on the same page uh, to do something in repetition and at the same time, keeping creative and listening to customers and improving products yeah so, it sounds complicated yeah so you know on bad days and there have been a lot of tough days growing this company um it's like oh my god i wish i was an architect and but i'm <laughs> sure i'm sure because when i went to architecture school i also simultaneously wished i could go to industrial design school um if i was an architect now i'd be complaining about something too i can i can relate to that yeah but i I mean, I think that's also why architects are are drawn to the profession. You know, it's constantly frustrating and constantly rewarding at the same time. Um, but it, it's it's funny to me. How do I explain this? You know, I mentioned like my application for the room prize was all about craft and personality and sort of one off things and how they talk. And then my my the habitats the trailers we make are all about production but trying to keep that one-off personality intact both right. both in the like we make multi-use things and i've conceived of big people and small people using them and you know people in good moods and bad moods um but multi-use is not generic at all right i know from experience and i'm disappointed in designs that become generic um and so my favorite thing in the world is to track our instagram or go to rallies and see how all these different people of you know crazy different backgrounds and interests have made this product their own yeah. um by outfitting it or hacking it or all these things it's a it's a fascinating story i want to just jump back to your time at nasa you're not with yeah. nasa anymore right you're, you're full-time with taxa right all right. More than full time. Yes. Yeah, yes. Your entire life. Um, but I wanted to just just go back there a little bit because I've never talked to a space architect. I, what was your what was your like job there? What did you do? Um, because when you first reached out to me or, or how I, I'm not sure how we connected. But when when I first right. learned about what you wanted to to talk about, I'm like space architect. Well, that's pretty amazing and fascinating. But he wants to talk about a 
a camper. <laughs> and I'm like, how did that happen? And how does and how does it connect? But after you tell me your story, it's so obvious that this is the culmination of that story. That this you know it results in in where you are today. And so that's why I love the origin story because it, it, yeah. it sort of tells us how you got to where you are. Um, and so what, what did you do as a space architect? What was your job there? Um, let me try to think of expressing this in a succinct fashion. Um, the way that will make my successive efforts make the most sense is to say, you know, the, the ast astronauts were my clients. Either that meant I was working with them or I was thinking about them and people in small spaces living inside of machines. And, you know, if you really think about it, you know, being terrified and getting irradiated. I mean, yeah. not, not that astronauts are terrified, but in general, one can relate they're, to it. They're living scary. among terrorizing, you know, terror, terrorizing situations well, and they're yeah, trained to deal with it. Yes. And you're as safe as possible doing a very dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, and so in a very interesting way, I, I got turned on to the world of specifications and performance specifications, which is, you know, a lot of documents. Every contract at NASA or every project has to adhere to all these documents. And the ones that relate to humans are fascinating. I mean, they, they are as basic in every, you know, electrical and function ways, like you shall be able to turn this machine off and you shall be able to turn it off, on and off. And, you know, all these like literal requirements. And if you check every box as a contractor, you get paid. But at the time, they didn't know how to write being a person into the specifications. Mm. They had very specific criteria that you had to demonstrate you passed that a fifth percentile Japanese female to 95th percentile American male had to be able to do everything on the space station. And so in terms of height, that means I think about four foot six to six foot three. Um, but in terms of strength, that means something different in terms of all these things. So simply the act of being able to put on and off clothes in an enclosed environment where you're, where is your hand hold so you're not floating all around knocking into other things? Where is your foothold? Uh, like literally, how do you do these things? Where do your feet go when you're doing a lab experiment with your hands? How do you hold your hands still so that you can do a dissection or plant a plant or whatever else you might be doing? Um, so in a, in a totally quantitative way, how do big people and small people uh, survive, uh, maintain, and do things in outer space? Yeah. So, yeah. And that's really Cool. And it's, you know, it's beautiful when you start really getting into it, because it's, it's about uh, the choreography of people in a small space, you know, and, you know, in outer space, how they're floating past or kicking past and whether their feet are getting tangled in wires or whether, I don't know, all these things. And then the, uh, the qualitative things at NASA where it's like, okay, you're all in a small space, there's all these noises, some noises might be alarms or some noises might be alarms about the like third backup alarm is failing but you're totally safe all these things but the the qualitative parts are like one person's from russia and one's from the u.s or japan and you all have wildly different cultural expectations about what personal space means and how close your head is to someone else's when you talk to them and all these things that are like interesting on the ground in a tourist situation um 
but over six months of like intense life, like there, yeah. those are real stressors and can cause arguments or fights or all these things. Um, so you, it was a really thorough education in, in it, like an engineering sense and a human sense of like, how many things can we consider? I mean, it, it wasn't about designing something beautiful. It was about removing irritation and making like function better, but also about designing things that allowed many different people to, to use them in different ways. And that has direct relationship to the habitats I make where, you know, my campers have useful ceilings. It's not just a, a plane that keeps out the water. It's like, you can put stuff on it and it's reflecting light in specific ways. And it's all these other things. Um, so literally I was tasked to different projects, a refrigerator freezer or a crew quarters or a bathroom or a, the process of making dinner um, along with, I don't know, 15 or 20 engineers of other categories and trying to uh, like be the person at the table who is representing the, the social and sort of qualitative aspects of life and space. But, but as we all know, uh, by saying sort of qualitative, I mean, <laughs> you know, it gets into quantitative really fast. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah. That gray area is really interesting. And, it, and I would still be at NASA if like space was my my thing, but really my thing is people and personality and efficiency somehow. Right. So you've taken everything that you've you've learned and experienced at NASA and has and you've you've translated that into this new company. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. Let's talk ArcViz technology. Powered by the near limitless Unreal Engine, our friends at Twinmotion offer a fast and easy way to produce stunning real-time visualizations and immersive experiences for your clients. Twinmotion gives you the tools you need to make faster decisions and relay information to your clients in a way that instantly speaks to them. Breathe life into your scene by changing the season, the weather, the time of day, just by moving a slider. Immersing your clients in a way that they'll love and more importantly, be able to truly picture themselves in. Why not share your design with stakeholders in collaborative reviews and edit your scene together? There's no better way to get buy-in than making your clients feel part of the development process. Right now, they're running an exclusive free trial. Check it out at twinmotion.link slash entrearchitect. That's twinmotion.link slash entrearchitect to get Twinmotion for free. BIM can be important for your next project but it's not the only thing you need for your next project. That's why it's important that 95% of manufacturers who offer free BIM files on RCAT also offer another type of data or information that your project may need. That means 95% of the products with BIM also have CAD files, are in a specification, in a patented spec wizard, or may have product information to help you make the right selection. So stop going to a site with just BIM and go to rcat.com to get everything you need for your next project for free and without registering. No cost, no credit card, no email. It's free. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. When building a business you're passionate about, it's easy to feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. And if you're doing all the invoicing and accounting on your own, 
you're probably spending time on work you don't love. FreshBooks is built for business owners like us. It's the all-in-one accounting software that saves entrepreneurs and freelancers up to 11 hours a week. That's 11 hours that you could spend nailing a client pitch, designing your next project, or building your business as an architect. From preparing, sending, and following up on invoices, to tracking and managing expenses, to processing online payments, FreshBooks automates and simplifies all the tough and annoying parts of running your own business. So try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. Go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entre Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section and get more time back to build the business you love. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Tell me about, you said that that you were talking to Airstream and you were looking for the, the, the camper that was built for you and your family and you couldn't find it. Um, and then you, you had some ideas and you had somebody come in and, and help you fund that idea. How did, how did that happen? What, what's that story there? Um, it's literally my, my doctor's brother. So I was <laughs> chatting with my doctor. He chatted to his brother and then we got together. Um, so that's, and you just, how and that you happened. just had sort of an aligned idea. He liked your idea and he had the funds to fund it and said, well, here you go, go try, try this, see how it works. Yeah, that was totally lucky and totally circumstantial um you know relative to amounts of money i've needed to raise since then it was it's a very little amount of money but he right. had enough cash to to give me some research money and of course that means he owned part of my company at that point um yeah he gave you the seed money to sort of explore the idea or pre-seed yeah. yeah and it, you know i have so many uh war stories that are funny you know i really i really was a garage-based startup um <laughs> And it's really true that the first time a cricket prototype got outside the garage, it's, it's wheel fell off in the middle of the street. Um, <laughs> so tell was, me about those, that, those first two units, how, how did you design them? How did you build them? How did they work? Uh, they worked poorly and I tested them to destruction. Um, <laughs> they, well, you know, I had a small architecture office. We were a three or four person, depending. I was designing a playground and a few houses at the time. Um, and I started devoting all the money I made that way into, into starting to design what was the cricket and renting the garage next to my tiny little studio and starting to, to build it. Um, from my time at NASA, I learned that, you know, these small spaces, it's really crucial to get full scale as soon as possible. Because as I have ever more experience in, architects generally know what they're drawing in an intuitive, factual way uh, until it's about 36 inches wide, you know, literally a doorway. Yeah. And be smaller than that, it's, you know, they have opinions about bookshelf depths and heights, but, and industrial designers, are really good with things in their hand up to about a appliance shape maybe. And that this, this in-between world of people in small spaces uh, is really like no one's schooling particularly trains them for it. 
I guess I've never talked to someone who went to naval architecture school. Um, yeah. People are, who are designing boats. That's the closest thing. Right. Um, boats and submarines. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess submarine is a boat. But <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, even, it's funny. Even I don't actually know what a naval architect does literally or whether there's enough of them that some of them are designing hull shapes and some of them are designing interiors of big ships and small ships but i'm obsessed with you know sailboats of 40 feet length and smaller and the choreography and how you're inside underneath in a storm is really fascinating to me and you know some boats do a good great job with that and other ones don't and you so you start once your eyes are tuned you start seeing where hand holds and hip holds are are stationed for all those sort of uh, not normal situations. Um, so sorry, I so we built a cardboard mock-up and I put my coffee machine in it and every meeting was there for three or four of us had to get into this cardboard box and have a meeting and discover when 20 inches was really much different than 18 inches and how much of a difference did it make if you were carrying a, a backpack or a laptop with you while you were trying to go through the doorway, stuff like that. and. At the same time, I was starting to teach design studios where I would assign my students all those same things. You know, we try to to do experiments to figure out, you know, beyond a wheelchair with why are doorways the size they are? Why is this six foot eight? Where did that come from? Is that a people measurement? Is that a people plus hat measurement? Um, does it have anything to do with two people trying to go through the same doorway at the same time? Uh, so I had students setting up doorway frames on sidewalks in their cities and trying to get passersby to walk through them and ask some fun questions. Or, and I would say, okay, like get a Home Depot bucket and have dinner with your three best friends and notice how close you are, or whether your knees touch and whether that's upsetting or not. So yeah. I, you know, really fun elemental experiments, fun, at least from my point of view, they didn't, they seem to have fun with it too. Um, but that are really very relevant and that's at an architectural scale you you don't generally think of even i'm trying to think of like new york city restaurants where the tables can be so close pre-pandemic um you know which ones does your neighbor's elbow hang over your food right you start right. start noticing those things and saying you know actually you can assign some dimensions to these things um it, it's not random it's not just good or bad so you know, things like that now make me angry in a, in a good way about. Yeah, you like, probably see everything, right? Because yeah, no, I see ergonomics and, you yeah. know, the, all these human measurements are called anthropometrics, which probably doesn't come up in your architecture life very often. But it, it's as simple as, you know, so many people design chairs and so many of them get some basic numbers wrong about how high the seat should be off the ground and what a comfortable backrest angle is. Like those are those are facts at this point. So it really makes me mad when I see things that are uh, just non-factually designed. Like yeah. they don't account for all our human experience. Um. So this that slippery slope. You know, for years I hoped that I could remain a design studio. It's like if I could be designing a house and a trailer and a boat and a spaceship, that would be awesome. Yeah. Um. But really, I kept getting more and more orders for trailers. And it was like, oh, my God, first I have to go from this garage to 2,000 square feet and then to 5,000 square feet. And 
When when did the the realization that building a trailer at scale and a you know a company where you're you know you are delivering and shipping you know I don't know how many you ship but right. let's say hundreds of these these units and you have multiple units now the cricket was was built as a two person two kid trailer yeah um, that can be transformed when you get to your campsite and can be all these different things and then now you have multiple models. Um, when did the or what was it like when the realization that this manufacturing thing became your life that all these not only how is it designed and how it's built but how do you get all these parts and all these people to do the things that it needs to be done in order for this company to work yeah there's a lot of ways to answer that question um i'm much smarter now than i was 10 years ago uh <laughs> And, you know, I've, I've had to raise money a number of times because growing a manufacturing business is very capital intensive, you know, and I've, you know, all the horror stories of other businesses where you can grow yourself right out of business because, you know, since you have to buy your materials 60 days in advance of when you can sell them, um, you know, as you're scaling up that, that causes a, a number of pinch points. Um, and by pinch points, I mean, sort of terrors of, oh my God, <laughs> is, is the timing going to work out? Will I be in business in three weeks or will I not be? Um, which that's that's a different sort of straight up entrepreneurial manufacturing story of, of uh, the pleasures and terrors of yeah. money flows. It, it, the the um, successful businesses that we see today are the ones that made it through those tough times because they, they all experienced those tough times. Yeah, um, yes. So I, that's, I'm still scarred by that, but uh, things look good now. I, I'm, we're obviously very lucky to be in a pandemic uh, favorable business. We were going to have our record breaking year anyway. I mean, but we've, we're three times the size we were a year ago. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's going to get even bigger because I think once, because yeah. a lot of people, you know, needed to escape their home. And so they went camping and they went into the outdoors by themselves without people. And so I can imagine that this past year has been transformative for your company. But I think that as the pandemic sort of uh, finds its way, you know, to wherever it's headed and, and we get back to normal in our life, our lives, we can sort of start finding our way out of our, out of our homes. I think the next couple of years, people's priorities will shift and those adventures are going to become even more uh, relevant to us all. And, uh, and I think your, your company is going to fit right into that. Yeah, you said that very well. Um, you know, so in a, in a completely non-business way, I'm very excited by what I think is, is a cultural turn to, uh, to the outdoors and how yes. important it is and how important you know, varying your experience and getting out of the city and fresh air. And I can talk about that scientifically in terms of brain chemistry, um, all these things. A friend of mine wrote a great book called The Nature Fix. Her name's Florence Williams. Um, and, and the book's all about, you know, brain chemistry and getting outside and how beneficial it is and how in other countries, you know, people are, their health insurance demands that they spend X minutes outside every week because it's, it's demonstrably good for you, but even more exciting in a, you know, in, in a 
in a systems way, and by I mean a few things by systems, which I'll get back to. Um, you know, I think getting people people, I don't know, just people realizing that they go outside and enjoy it and it's different. And that pushes to the stewardship of the natural environment mm -hmm. and taking care in it and in an architectural urban planning and ex-urban planning way, um, realizing even more that all these things are related and we have to, we have to be intentional about them and design them. Um, so I think that's a exciting business opportunity for designers um, to think ever ever less how do i say this you know not just everything you design is a part of so many systems and the more systems you can think about when you're designing them even if you're not addressing them explicitly if if you're not just assuming that they exist um is good for the product you're designing and the people you're designing it for yeah yeah and, I, and I, i'm trying to think of I've, I jumped into the middle of like talks I give instead of the beginning. You know, Bucky Fuller wrote, write, used to write about Spaceship Earth. And by Spaceship Earth, he really meant, um, you know, the Earth is a closed system. We have to consider it that way. And since I had been working on spaceships, that really became super apparent because, you know, on the space station, how many skin cells fall off your face and how much hair falls off your head is a trash problem. It shows up on an air filter. Huh. So all these assumptions I was talking about, it's like, yeah, in outer space, you can't even assume you can breathe your next breath. On Earth, of course, we can. But if you can just start thinking of the environment and the economy and people and vehicles and all these things, obviously, you're going you're gonna to design differently. So even our habitats, you know, trying to take more systems into effect, they're all targeted towards like different numbers of people, like two adults, two adults plus two kids, four adults. You know, we have a family of products, but also it's like, hey, if they all fit in a garage, then you don't have to rent a rental space. Yeah. Um, and if they're all targeted towards like sets of vehicles, tow capacities, you know, maybe we can design away the tow vehicle purchase at the same time that we're designing you a great escaped vehicle to uh to get out there and have an adventure so some, those are some of the systems we consider now and i would if i had a design practice as opposed to a manufacturing and design company i would be totally pushing on people's doors about making 21st century campgrounds and you know obviously in the past few months the uh you know what is the electrical vehicle revolution that's apparently hitting in 2030 um how is that going to change all these systems and the infrastructure yeah. of of traveling and getting outside and and working of course too right those are all things that that as architects we should be thinking about and should should be looking at right because like you said before that everything has changed our world has changed the way we live has changed the way we play has changed the way we work has changed and those are all opportunities for architects every single one of them and so we should be looking at the future and looking at the very near future, right? This is happening right now. We're in the middle of that yeah. transformation. Um, and so it is, it is an opportunity for us to take the lead on all of those situations and be the leaders in the world, right? That's, you're looking for a value and, and what architects are valued as. Those are the situations that we can position ourselves as the experts and, uh, yeah. and be the leaders in those industries. And I think, you know, I mentioned this 
earlier, you know, when I was at NASA, being the architect at a table of all these other experts in their categories, um, you know, it is of course wonderful and great to own your specialty, but it's it's really exciting when the way you think, the way an architect thinks, is very relevant to some other problem mm -hmm. in the systems, and you help in that instance a set of engineers untangle it and use your the way you think creatively. Um, to to look at a, a situation and fix it and and that's certainly by analogy you know since i haven't followed a standard architectural path i think about how the way i was taught and to um you know think at large scale and small scale simultaneously and to make sure that i'm sh shifting through those scales as as much as i can um is very helpful and wonderful to I'm going to be stereotyped here. You know, an engineer's path is usually linear and very focused. Um, and to be able to have a wonderful conversation with an engineer about, you know, showing that when putting two solutions to two different problems next to each other creates a third set, um, third set of issues. And if you can pre-think those out, then you're you're making a systematic and a systemic solution, not just a, a, a spot a spot focused thing yeah that wasn't very quotable that i should rephrase that somehow but the <laughs> i i understand uh, and i'm sure everybody again, else understands i'm kind of obsessed by the systems thinking and yeah you know, cast, casting a wide net and you of course want to define the problem you're working on but you would you need to be very aware of the things you're not working on too and that you're not making a wrong assumption or a dated assumption or a, and so yeah i think architects should be everywhere um, you know, being uh, productive and irritating in the right way yeah. in all these different yeah. situations. What is the what does the future look like for Garrett Finney and Taxa? What's the next five years look like? What's your what's your your plan? Well, let's see. We just moved into a seventy thousand square foot factory a month ago. I'm sitting in a habitat because we're having some permitting problems and our office is not, not finished yet. <laughs> yes, we're um, actually recording. Well, I'm not recording, but Garrett's actually right. sitting in one of his habitats right now recording. Right. So, The uh, executive office is in the parking lot right now. Um, <laughs> you know, we are growing and it's finally with this family of products, these habitats we have now uh, are established and we are looking to scale, of course, and you know, we think, I think that the paradigm of a habitat and adventure equipment you sleep in is of course much better than the house on wheels thing. So we look to to grow and teach and, you know, grow our community of people who want to camp, but have the right overlap of comfort and safety and all those things. Um, but that means I'm, I'm finally able to turn to the next sets of habitats. And I, you know, there's a lot of places that habitats are growing, and many architects are excited about them. From you know ADUs to uh, all sorts of tourism things that are happening now of other places that really small, efficient, uh, you know, beautiful but but well thought out in a systems of infrastructure and servicing apply. So we use the word habitat instead of RV. Um, but that means that not all the habitats on the drawing boards have wheels. Uh, they get around in other ways too. 
Very um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, fleshing out this world, uh, you know, if I'm pitching, if I was trying to raise money from you, I'd be saying, hey, the RV industry is, you know, I forget what it is, $50 billion, but the outdoor industry is $800 billion. And outdoor industry includes clothing and sunglasses and boots and all these things. But it, you know, a much, a very big number still is all about people needing to get away from their usual place and do something else. And uh, the tiny home movement is therefore inspirational. The, the things happening in land use through uh, hip camp, et cetera, are exciting. Um, so it's, we have big plans. It's that's fascinating to hear your your plans. It, it I as you're telling your story from the beginning to where we are right now, um, I could only imagine that that what you're doing with Taxa um, and what you just explained about your future that this someday comes full circle and you're back in space. That Taxa or you know <laughs> Taxa as as a company or Taxa as a, a pioneer and an inspiration for future companies, because space is going to be a place where we travel, right? And that's going to happen. I don't know yeah. how soon that will happen. It's getting closer for sure. Um, and I could imagine that someone like you and a company like you. I don't know if it happens soon enough where that happens, but I could see Taxa, you know. From what you just explained, that that it's not only a camper company; it is an outdoor company, and it's a, and it's about people in small spaces. That when that opportunity rises, that you're right back into space. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> in a semantic way, space is everywhere. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, it's very interesting. Yeah, and to use our current tag phrase, you know, out is in, um, and that's. We really believe that. Yeah, I, um, I and like I said, I think the next few years it's going to be even bigger. Uh, Garrett, it's before, still true though that NASA doesn't want architects to apply as astronauts. Yeah, but NASA is not the only one doing it. <laughs> That's true. I haven't, I haven't resent my application anywhere else. <laughs> and there'll be more once they figure it all out. There'll be more. It'll be a, it'll be a huge industry. It's already a huge, huge industry, but. Right. It'll be, a, you know, it'll be an industry like the industries we have on Earth that, that you know, entrepreneurs <clears throat> come up with ideas and say, okay, well, they figured that out. Now we can go build these things that go those places. And it'll, be, right. it'll be a very interesting world in the future, just as it is now. If you look back and where we were and where we are, it's fascinating. So, Garrett, what's, what's one thing if we – I mean, we're talking to thousands of, of small firm architects, lots of them uh, entrepreneurs, lots of them have big ideas – uh, some have small ideas and they want to sort of figure those ideas out. What is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Yeah, again, I should be really succinct, but I, I never usually am in this instance. Um, again, I get back to this systems thing. Uh, how many systems can you come up with to place your idea within? So I like to, to define my problem by trying to think as, of as many constraints and influences and finding where the, the Venn diagram overlap is. Um, but really, I think that's, that's how I think. Um, but really, no one else knows better than you. So just start doing it um, and get smarter looking backwards. But jump in because if you're wondering, 
if it's a good idea, uh, the only way to find out is to start doing it. Yeah, very good advice. His name is Garrett Finney. The company is Taxa, and you can find them on tax on the internet at taxaoutdoors.com. You should go there and see everything that you're doing. Um, if, like I said, there are lots of models of, of their habitats. Super interesting story. You can also follow them on Instagram at Taxa Outdoors. Uh, Garrett, this has been fascinating. This has been really interesting to hear your story, where you've come from, how that story has led to Taxa. Uh, thank you for joining me today and sharing that story and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how you could help grow Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, FreshBooks, Arcat, and Twin Motion for their support of this episode. Links to all our sponsors and all our resources that we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. That's you. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Go there now. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources for architects, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA continuing education learning units. Yep, they are there, there too. Entree Architect is there for you. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Thanks for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. 
And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. And so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success. <laughs>